0: Okay, what if I were to say to you this morning, get ahead of the rest, put yourself first, do whatever it takes to achieve your dreams and don't let anyone, especially not these people around you, stand in your way. Are they attractive ideas? They're certainly the kind of messages that we hear in society around us. I recently read something that said, Respect yourself enough to walk away from anything that no longer serves you or makes you happy. Now, maybe these attitudes do sound a little selfish, but are there at least times where you have wanted to receive recognition or to have felt that you are a little bit more important than somebody else? In previous jobs that I've had, I've been been involved in organizing events such as conferences And the thing is, when you organize an event, you're often very much behind the scenes. And I find myself thinking, well, that's no good at all. I am the one who has put a lot of effort into this. I'm not just simply an attendee at this event. So you could get around this, I could get around this, by giving myself an upfront role and standing up the front to welcome people to say hello, welcome to this conference, I've organized this for you today. But maybe that's just a little bit too obvious. So instead, I could give myself a badge, a lanyard with a badge on the end. Now, lanyards with badges give power. And they now say who I am, exactly who I am. And I can feel a little bit more important than somebody else. And I can maybe even skip the coffee queue and go right to the front and get special privileges because of that. I can grasp at the opportunity of showing that I am not just an attendee. Now, that isn't to knock lanyards and badges. We use them a lot at church. Please don't judge anyone today that you see wearing one. Um, The issue here is more my heart. And what is going on inside me that makes me think by having a badge with what I do and who I am on it make me more important than someone else? That's the issue why, is, why do I have these thoughts? Probably because I'm quite pathetic and sad, you may be thinking. But it is a bit deeper than that, isn't it? There's more to it. There's something in all of us, at times at least, that desires to be better than other people or to be looked at with admiration and use that as a way maybe to get special privileges. Or if we're not that sort of person... Um, maybe we're someone who likes to you know, hang out with those who are in the know, perhaps, or who are more important. At least that might make us feel a bit better about ourselves. But are such attitudes the, the route to joy and unity for us as a church? We're going through the letter to Philippians here as a church. And last week, Dan helped us to see the attitude of Paul, the writer of the letter to the Philippians. And we saw, didn't we, a tension in Paul, that actually, on the one hand, he longs to die, not to escape this life, but because he knew that he would be with his Lord Jesus. Yet on the other hand, Paul also desired um, to remain in this life, not because his life was comfortable here, far from it, but because he cared so much about other Christians that he wanted to be able to labor for them, for their progress and their joy in the faith. And why did Paul have this tension? It was because he understood what life is all about. He had perspective. If you were here, you might remember the rope. Don't worry, Ardell, I'm not going to unravel it this time. Um, But you might remember the rope. The red bit here on the end represents this life now, and the white bit is meant to represent all of eternity that is just going on forever and ever. And he knew that this red bit affects the white bit. He wasn't simply living for himself, but for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of others, for the sake of eternity. And today we will see how Paul continues along this theme of living our lives for the sake of others. So let's read our passage for today. If you'd like to turn to Philippians chapter 2 on page 1179, Philippians chapter 2, we will read verses 1 to 11 together. Okay. Okay. So in this passage we have a stunning poem about our Lord Jesus and sometimes we read it as a standalone poem without giving attention to the verses that come before it but we shouldn't do that. We need to read the verses around it and um, to put it in its proper context so that we properly understand what is going on. So we need to take a look at verses 1 to 5 before we delve into this beautiful poem. And these verses are so important because they tie up the poem with our own attitudes about how we live and interact with one another as followers of Jesus. So let's take a look then. So in verse 1, Paul is asking his readers to think about their experiences of being Christians? Have they received encouragement from being united to Christ? Have they received um, comfort from his love or common sharing in the spirit, tenderness, compassion? Have I experienced these things? Have you? Are there times when you've known joy because of Jesus? Experienced comfort, maybe, in painful situations? Known God's love in ways that you can hardly even describe? Or enjoy deep and tender fellowship with other Christians? If so, if that is your experience, then Paul has something to say to you. Verse 2 He says, Then make my joy complete by being like minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, and of one mind. This is all about unity among believers and the joy that unity brings. Because isn't it true that when we experience these things, it's often because other Christians have united with us and ministered to us. It's part of God's plan that we operate together like this in community and receive his grace and blessings through our brothers and sisters in Christ. So if we've experienced these things then we too should seek to be those who bless others in that way and minister the special grace of Jesus to our brothers and sisters. That's what Paul means when he tells us to be like-minded and so on in verse 2. This is Christian unity and it promotes the gospel both among us and also to the world. And it links back to chapter 1 verse 27 where Paul tells us to stand firm in the one spirit Striving together as one for the faith of the gospel. Paul wants believers to strive to protect their unity in the spirit and and the gospel. And verses 3 and 4 in chapter 2 tell us how. So let's take a look at them. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. So already we see life in the church is not about me, no. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Wow. I'm to value others in the church above me. I'm to look to their interests above my own. That's how we build and preserve unity among us. What happens when believers promote their own selfish ambitions and look to their own interests only? Well, the disciples James and John once went to Jesus with selfish ambition, thinking of their own interests. They asked him for honoured positions of sitting at his right and his left when he was in glory. And of course, when the other disciples found out about this, they were not happy at all. There was disunity and strife in the disciple camp. Have you ever experienced or maybe even been the cause of disunity that has come about because of selfish ambition and looking to your own interests? Jesus had something to say about this to the disciples in Mark 10, verse 32. He said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. It's a similar challenge, really, isn't it? To valuing others above ourselves and looking to the interests of others. But how on earth are we to do this? How are we to do this when our instinct is that we want everything to suit us? Um or to be comfortable, and for things to be to our own liking. We might not have the audacity of the the disciples, but our attitudes might, from time to time, be the same. How can we strive for the kind of unity that is so into desiring the good of other people that their needs come before our own, and we value them above ourselves? Jesus' closing words to his disputing disciples were about himself. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He was telling the disciples to look to him as their example. And that's exactly what Paul says as well in this letter to the Philippians. So verse 5 of our passage holds the key to this kind of unity. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That is the key. We must fix our eyes on him as our example. And that's what we're going to do now as we delve into this poem. So here we go. Let's read um, verses 5 to 8. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So what do we learn about Jesus' attitudes? Well, first, let us consider his mindset towards his identity in verse 6. Now, the identity of Jesus is very important. We need to know exactly who Jesus is because our response to him determines our destiny. So his identity has been revealed to us. Jesus is God. By his very nature, he is God. God who created the world, who is one with the Father. But Jesus' attitude towards his identity is astonishing. He doesn't deny that he is God. No, because his desire is for people to know exactly who he is so that they can experience the life of salvation that he gives. But he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Now, Jesus had every right to use his position as God, to get all the privileges that this world and heaven has to give. He deserves to do that. But he didn't consider his position as God something to exploit. And that was because he was secure in his identity as God. He didn't have any point to prove. He is God, end of. So he didn't need to grasp and grasp and take advantage like some big boss man in the sky sapping life out of others for the sake of his own happiness. Rather, his attitudes and his security in who he is meant that he could be exactly who he is. And that is the God who gives and gives and gives. And out of that heart that just keeps on giving, he made himself nothing for the sake of others, verse 7. It wasn't that God gave up being God. (laughs) Not at all. Through everything, Jesus remained God. But he emptied himself of all the rights and privileges that come from being God, and he took on the image of a servant. So, what do we learn about Jesus' attitude towards his image? When the American president, Barack Obama, visited the UK in 2012, um, there was a thoroughly planned security operation that took place. And this is how the BBC News reported how he would travel. The size of the motorcade will vary according to the risks of the visit, but there could be dozens of vehicles, including decoys. British police cars and motorbikes lead the way alongside US agents to secure the route, followed by secret service vehicles, support cars and emergency medical vehicles. A three-to-four-vehicle group will hold the president and senior officials, and at its center is the armored limousine. Nicknamed the Beast, this modified Cadillac has been described as the safest vehicle on the planet, assembled at a cost of $300,000. The president of the United States is a very important man, and so he travels as one might expect in style and with huge amounts of security in place. And with a lot of money behind that. But Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, did not reveal himself to us in wealthy style, surrounded by security, demonstrating his importance. The most important, glorious, powerful being ever in existence took on a different image. Giving up all his privileges, yet still maintaining his divinity, he became one of his created ones one of us, a human being. And not a celebrity of a human being, but a lowly servant, a nobody. Let's not miss how astonishing this is. If we knew nothing about God and we were told he was going to reveal uh, reveal himself to us, we would probably expect him to arrive in style and for him to be expecting us to serve him. Who would ever imagine that he would come? As a vulnerable fetus becoming a helpless baby, a clumsy toddler, a child, a teenager, a carpenter, a man who would pour himself out as a humble servant for those he has made. What kind of image is that? It's the image our God came with. And a humble servant... Is someone who is prepared to inconvenience themselves for the sake of others. What is Jesus' attitude towards inconvenience? Let's take a look at verse 8. I wonder what it would have been like for Jesus to come to earth and to leave heaven. I'm a person who likes comfort. Take Christmas Day, for example. I always want it to be cozy and comfortable. It includes in my head a warm orange glow from a lovely, cozy fire, an abundance of foods, an evening of games or TV, no pressure at all on that day, except maybe for cooking the dinner and Then I hear of those people who, on Christmas Day, go out onto the streets and run soup kitchens or the like, giving up their own opportunity of comfort and indulgence for the sake of those in need. And it's a challenge for me. Interruptions to my comfort too often seem inconvenient. Was it inconvenient for Jesus to leave heaven, the only place where there's endless joy, the place of perfection and endless comfort? Was it inconvenient to take on a body that experienced limitations and pain when there was none of that in heaven? Was it inconvenient to live a life of serving others when he is the one who deserves to be served? These are surely far more than inconveniences, but tremendous sacrifices. Jesus' willingness to leave heaven, taking the form of a human and the image of a servant, exposes my ideas of inconvenience to what they really are. Downright trivial. But his humility went even further, taking him down the road of ultimate sacrifice. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now the language in this poem should shock us. As if it's not enough that Christ Jesus, the God of um, the universe, should humble himself to become obedient to death. It's underlined that it was even death on a cross. Now, the cross to us is a very common symbol, one we see around a lot and might even wear as jewellery. But let's, not make sure, let's make sure that we don't lose the significance of Jesus dying on a cross. Crucifixion was a brutal, hideous way to be executed. And in Roman society, it was reserved just for... Um, The worst of criminals, for rebels, for slaves, basically the people who were the lowest of the low. It was considered too cruel for a Roman citizen to be crucified, so they never crucified Roman citizens. It was too cruel. Such was the agony experienced by death on a cross. And in Bible times, the mention of crucifixion was taboo, associated with shame and horror. It is shocking that Jesus willingly went to the cross. Did Jesus consider it too inconvenient to leave heaven, taking the form of a man and the image of a servant? No, he did not. Did Jesus consider it too big a sacrifice to obey his father and go to the cross? No, he did not. This was weighty, costly obedience Yet Jesus humbly and willingly obeyed. Why? Why did Jesus do all of this? Well, because humanity, each and every one of us, have forsaken him, rebelled against the God of the universe in our selfishness, and his death was what was necessary for lost humanity to be able to be restored and brought back into relationship with God. The cross was not just an agonizing physical death for Jesus but a sacrifice that went even further. As he hung on that cross, he fully identified with humans by becoming sin and bearing the punishment that should have been ours. That was the true agony of the cross, and he did it out of his love for us. What if Jesus had said no to all of this? The servant image the inconvenience and the ultimate sacrifice of death in our place. Have you ever thought about that? What if he said no? What would become of us? What hope would we have? There'd be no opportunity for restoration to God, no forgiveness, no certain hope for believers of a beautiful eternity spent with Jesus. But he didn't say no, did he? He went through with it all to the point of death, even death on a cross. We have so much to praise him for. Now we need to take a look again at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. We've seen the mindset of Christ Jesus. So what does it say to us? What does it mean for us? to have the same attitude? What does it mean for our attitudes towards our identity, our image? What does it mean to us about inconvenience, particularly in regard to our relationships with one another in the church? Let's take a look at three ways that we're possibly maybe in danger of going wrong here. So Jesus was secure in his identity as God, And so he could be who he is, the endless giver. So often we want to be um, recognized in certain ways, like me, um, the event organizer. We like labels and titles or simply letting others know that we have a role. And now roles in church are important. We need leaders. We need team players. Gifts and abilities are important and are the proper functioning of a church. That's, That's how we function. But are we ever in danger of taking advantage, using our supposed identity to selfishly promote our own needs and desires above those in the church? If so, then perhaps we've misunderstood our identity. Because our identity doesn't lie in what role we have in church or what team we serve on or how much we know about what is going on in church life. If you are following Jesus today then you are a beloved child of the Father. That is your identity. If we're secure in that identity as child of God, just as Jesus was secure in his identity, then we've got nothing else to prove. And we can start living as a child of God. That is someone who has the mindset of Christ who came not to be served, but to serve. We can be free from selfish ambition and vain conceit. So why not start praying today that God will help you, will help us to be secure simply in the fact that we are his children and then see if that doesn't begin to really shape our attitudes towards others. This is the path to unity and joy in the church. What about our attitudes towards our image Jesus took on the image of a servant, and there are things, aren't there, about being a servant that can appear rather humiliating or degrading. At the very least, a servant is one who is always putting the needs of others above his own. And I don't know how much you actually care about your image, but are there times when we're reluctant to get stuck into aspects of church life because they seem beneath us, or are more about other people than me? Am I ever jealous of those who are noticed more than me or are picked above me for the seemingly more glamorous opportunities? Or maybe it's too hard to do the thankless task that no one will ever see. Well, it is hard. It really is hard. Of course it is. But how much more of a big deal is it that the Creator came with the image of a servant? Oh, how much we need to look to Him and his example. Let's pray for changed desires and attitudes. Let's um, pray that we would put the needs of others above ours. Let's pray for those we're tempted to be jealous of, that God would bless them and that we'd desire their progress and joy in the faith. This is the path to unity and joy in the church. Also, we've seen that Jesus made the ultimate sacrifices that that went way beyond inconvenience. But why do we so often feel it is inconvenient to serve others? Because let's face it, it usually does cause us a level of inconvenience, doesn't it? To serve other people and to put their needs above our own. But why is it so difficult to be inconvenienced? I think that we're surrounded by a culture that heaps up luxuries for ourselves, where everything is made for comfort and convenience. And the attitude of society obviously affects um, us as churches. It seeps into the way we do church life. Sunday's part of our weekend, so we don't always want to help out at church. We want to relax. We have our families and our routines to think about. I find myself far too frequently thinking about how I would like everything about church life to suit me. Being part of a church family can be inconvenient, that's for sure. But what matters is our attitude towards that. We need perspective. What is our inconvenience in comparison to Jesus' sacrifice for us? We're told to have the same attitude as him in our relationships with others in the church. What could that look like in practice for you and me? Are there ways we've chosen not to serve one another because it requires a bit of effort and eats into our free time? Do I begrudge doing something because, um, because of the inconvenience it causes me? Maybe we need to take a grateful look at Jesus And consider his love for us. Consider what it means to be those who love like him. This is the path to unity and joy. Imagine how beautiful church communities would be if everybody was always looking to the interests of others above their own in these ways. And I know that here at Portswood Church, so many of us can testify to just how wonderful it is when other people have inconvenienced themselves for us or have served us, have loved us and put themselves out for us. We know that, don't we? We know what it feels like and how good it is. So let's keep growing in unity and joy as we continue on that road of laying down our selfish ambitions and looking to the interests of others above our own. What could each of us be doing to go further in this? In closing, I just want to address the question of why bother? Is all of this worth it? Because it is hard work, isn't it? Why should I want to be like Jesus when following his example is such a challenge? Well, we mustn't miss out on verses 9 to 11, which tell us why. Jesus obeyed and died the death for sinners. And, verse 9, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledged that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We bother because Jesus has been given the highest place of honor. His death was not the end. He rose alive again three days later, demonstrating his victory over death and evil. And because of his obedience to the Father in dying for us. God the Father has given him the name that is above every other name. That name is Yahweh, Lord. Now, Yahweh was God's personal name that he revealed himself by in the Old Testament. When in the Old Testament we see the word Lord in capital letters, that is um, Yahweh, the name God gave himself. I am. Jesus Christ, who came humbly as a man, taking the nature of a servant who died the sinner's death, now reigns as the God-man with the title of God himself, the highest honor, Lord. And this is so important. One day, everyone who has ever lived will come face to face with him. Everyone will say, will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. It will be a joyful thing to declare for people who followed him in this life. It will be the most incredible moment to be face to face with him. To kneel before him and in his presence say Lord and be welcomed. But for others it will be a declaration full of regrets as they face the prospect of eternity according to the life they chose now. Without Jesus and the eternal glory and joy that he offers. Remember again the rope. How we live now this red bit, has everlasting consequences for us. If Jesus truly is Lord, then we should start following him right away. Isn't he the most attractive saviour? Wouldn't we want to follow him? And if we are following him, then we should live our lives as his people, as those who share the attitude of Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. And, it's, and if we live as we've been considering over the last half hour, then this will build unity and joy in the church as we seek to reflect more and more our Savior Jesus, who will be with for all eternity. But not only that, living this way will speak to the world around us that doesn't yet know him The fact that every person is going to come face to face with Jesus is something we must take seriously. We are those who are to take Jesus to our lost communities, to ports without there and beyond. How are we going to show them Jesus? By promoting our own needs? By causing fallout and jealousy through selfishness? By shrinking away from serving because it's inconvenient? Or will we seek to be like Jesus? who didn't take advantage of his identity as God, but made himself nothing, the servant of all, and humbly went to the cross to die for us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you so much for Jesus. We thank you that you gave him to us. And we thank you for his attitude, for his willing humility for the fact that he came, that he gave up all his rights and came to serve us and that he died a death, even death on the cross for us. I pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on him, to, to be able to grasp more and more what that means and what it means to be more like Jesus. Please be building us into your people who reflect more and more our saviour, Jesus Christ, for your glory. Amen.